I have a wife I haven't seen Since lilacs bloomed in St. Italy She always wears them in her hair She lets them fall down everywhere Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film in the DC Extended Universe from director Matt Reeves. And that film is The Batman. And later in the episode we will be reviewing the new film from director Joe Wright, uh, which is the movie Cyrano, a musical adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac, the uh, fictionalized story of a real guy from uh, a long time ago. But uh, now on to our review of The Batman. Fear. Is a tool. But when that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. It's a warning. I've been trying to reach you. Find the gun! Rithers to match. I can take care of myself. If this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. It's only gonna get worse for you. Whoa, take it easy, sweetheart. Hear everything they say, ain't you? Maybe we're not so different. Who are you under there? I'm vengeance. That was from the trailer of The Batman, the new film in the DC Extended Universe starring Robert Pattinson as Bruce Wayne or Batman. I hate to blow his secret identity right here on the podcast, Daniel, but we're, we're breaking it here first. Uh, the film also stars Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle or Catwoman, Paul Dano as uh, the Riddler, Jeffrey Wright as Jim Gordon, and uh, various others, including John Turturro, Andy Serkis, and Colin Farrell. This film is a reboot of the Batman story. It does not acknowledge the uh, previous films, including the most recent uh, sort of Snyderverse films in uh, the Justice League universe, the Ben Affleck uh, take on Batman. Uh, Ben Affleck was originally going to star as a standalone Batman, and uh, there is a small subset of fanboys on Twitter who are still trying to hashtag restore the Snyderverse, but... Frankly, it seems like Ben Affleck is done with that part of his life, and uh, I think he may be better off for it. So, uh, yeah, we've moved on to Robert Pattinson, an actor that, Daniel, I think you and I both hold in fairly high regard prior to this movie. You know, he he was known for the Twilight movies, but pretty much every role he's done since then has uh, continued to demonstrate his, uh, his quality acting. And he was never that bad in the Twilight movies. You know, he did the job he was supposed to for those movies, but... Uh... Why are you trashing Twilight? Twilight is based in Washington State. It's, it has real-life vampires, and it's fantastic. It was shot in Vancouver, and it was written by somebody who never visited Washington State prior to writing her books. Uh, no particular geographical affinity with those books. We've been to Forks. It's full of Twilight memorabilia. It, it's a real place. More recently, it's known for QAnon memorabilia, but that's neither here nor there. But Daniel, am I correct that you have a, a high prior opinion of Robert Pattinson uh, to, uh, but prior to seeing this movie? Yeah, he's a good actor. Uh, I think he's done a fine job. We've seen him in such films as 
The Devil All the Time, uh, where he did a fantastic American Southern preacher accent. Uh, and uh, I, I quite liked him in the movie High Life, which um, I hope the uh, the recent Patton Sonnesance uh, leads people to checking out that weird-ass film from Claire Denis, uh, because it is, uh, it is absolutely a sci-fi film that will challenge you because it's really fucking disturbing. Uh, but Daniel, this film is from director Matt Reeves, somebody that we know previously from uh, such blockbusters as Cloverfield, as well as uh, the last two Planet of the Apes films that was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes. And uh, this is a guy who at least makes interesting, big, expensive films. He tends to hire... Uh, cinematographers who could do interesting things with darkness and fire and light. Uh, this was not the same cinematographer that he worked with on uh, the Apes films. This was cinematographer Grieg Fraser, uh, who was also the one who shot the movie Dune. So I'm curious what you think of uh, this movie conceptually. I'm curious what you think of its take on the Batman character. I'm curious what you think about its uh, take on Gotham City. This is not a movie, even though it's a reboot of the franchise, it's not a movie that comes about in a vacuum. It's a movie that uh, has a lot of expectations going into it because we have seen multiple iterations of the Batman in our lifetime. We've seen Michael Keaton. We've seen various TV versions of him. We've seen Christian Bale. Uh, we've seen Ben Affleck, and now we are seeing Robert Pattinson. So it's not as if we've been bereft of Batsman uh, in our life. But, uh, Daniel, I'm curious, how well does this one stack up? And uh, is this film uh, worth spending three hours of your time on? Is anything really worth spending three hours of your time on? I would like you to try and evaluate that question outside of your prior insistence that no movie is worth spending three hours of your time on. That's not, that's not, like, uh, well, sorry, uh, Lawrence of Arabia was worth three hours. That's true. And Lawrence of Arabia held my interest for three hours. Yeah, and I would say The Batman held my interest for three hours as well, even though I felt the wrong time in my bones towards the end. I, I will say that it is it's solid. It, it's confident action. I particularly like uh, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle, Catwoman. Uh, I thought, you know, Paul Dano did a fine job as the Riddler, even though the Riddler is not that interesting of a villain uh, conceptually. Like, when you have, like, the big, big bombastic villains of the DC universe, of the Batman universe, right? You have the Joker, you have Mr. Freeze, <laughs> you have uh, a, a Poison Ivy, um, Catwoman, no, the Catwoman's not really a villain. I guess she's kind of a tweener. She's more of an anti-hero, yeah. But I, we, we've seen a few different versions of Catwoman in our life, too. So I, I think it's uh, it's fair to say what I called out in my tweet storm about this movie was that one of the reasons why this film is three hours is because it's telling a multi-step crime story. I, I don't think that a detective story element of it is uh, people are going to call it that. And we definitely see Batman lurking around crime scenes inv invited in by his bestie Jim Gordon and escorted past the police perimeter so that he can look at stuff with his magic eyeballs and uh, identify forensic details that the cops are just too stupid to figure out on their own. Well, he has Fine. camera eyes. It's fun. Yeah, that's the that's the old stuff. And that's OK. This movie movie feels very much like a throwback visually as well as conceptually you know gotham feels like a real place i would say since the fir the for the first time since batman begins i'm gonna go ahead and put that line I, I i have to disagree with you gotham does not feel like a real place no place is that dark and dreary all the goddamn time like they do not show any daylight in this movie until the very end that is true and it's cloudy daylight <laughs> it's an overcast day at best of times no one would live there it's a miserable place full of terrorist attacks and yeah. rain <laughs> 
<laughs> I can count the amount of time that Batman spends as Bruce Wayne in this film, probably on both hands, but only just. Like, he is Batman almost the entire movie, and he feels deeply uncomfortable when he's Bruce Wayne. And he feels deeply uncomfortable for everyone else when he's Batman. This is a very deeply off-putting version of the character. Yeah, I, I think, uh, to get back to your original question, I, I think I think this movie worked for me, although I'm just not that into the Batman conceptually. Like, billionaire who fights crime. Like, that needs to be campy fun. Uh, like, the real old version of Batman, where he was, you know, you got the Chiron of, like, pow, Zeke, you know, kablamo. Like, that was the Batman I liked. Like, this dark, brooding, conflicted Batman... <laughs> Like, Robert Pattinson does a good job. I was enthralled with watching the film. He's kind of boring as a Batman, though. Like, like not, not Robert Pattinson's portrayal, but the writing for that character. Well, I think that Batman feels like a product of the 20th century, which he very much was. But it's a, it's a character that seeks to—it's it, not really interested in big systemic uh, change or, or sort of causes behind the, uh, the poverty and crime that he's seeking to beat the shit out of and hand over to the cops. You know, that's sort of the 20th century version of Batman. It's also the 20th century version of Spider-Man. You know, he, uh, he beats up the bad guys, he ties them up, and he leaves them at the police station for, uh, for, for a just justice system to dispose of. And as Batman has aged into the 21st century, it's forced to answer these these broader systemic questions. Now, it's not to say none of that has ever come up. You know, the uh, political corruption, police corruption were always issues in the old the, in the older versions of this world as well. Um, and that's a big reason why Batman is considered to be quote unquote necessary. You know, the system is broken and the only person who can save us all is a billionaire in a suit who beats people up. So it's fair to say this movie had a, a very well-defined perspective on what those broader forces are that keep Gotham in this place of crime and despair and darkness, and why prior attempts to solve that have not been successful. It is not a question that goes unanswered, and I think that is that along with Catwoman's story and Catwoman's agenda, which is aligned with, with uh, Batman's at times and not aligned with his at times. That tension and the need to tell that story from multiple perspectives, including sort of a top-down perspective of what's going on in Gotham, is the reason why this movie is three hours, and is largely the reason why it held my interest for three hours. I am with you on that. Um, this is not one that I think I will throw on casually when I feel like watching a little something, but when I want to dig into a meaty crime story, this is probably one I'll revisit. And we didn't talk much about Paul Dano. You said he was uh, kind of a goofy or uninteresting DC villain conceptually. No, I, I th- yeah, like... <sighs> I, he's I get, a serial killer in this film. Yeah, and I'm sorry. Zodiac. Like Zodiac, Jigsaw. I guess I don't I don't like those super genius characters like villains. I don't know, like it, it doesn't it doesn't grab me, right? What's his motivation? He wants well, to get into he his wants, motivation. It is eventually revealed, but we can talk about that when we get into spoilers. Yeah, sure. But I don't know. Like I, I watch a serial killer who is a brainiac who whose plans are overly complicated but somehow work perfectly. And I, it's just not that interesting to me, just, just personally. Like, I want the guy who wants to change the world, like Mr. Freeze, or who well, wants to, to freeze the world. He wants to fight climate change, just like Poison Ivy. Like, those are villains I can get behind, right? Because they might have a little bit of a point, even though they're crazy. The Penguin, the Wriggler, they seem like B-level villains. Like, we, I want the A-list. I want the creme de la creme. I want... 
Batman versus the Joker, except not the Joker, because the Joker's been done, done to death. But I need a rival, like I'm saying, this guy could take out the Batman. And I don't see that in the regular. We have a few Mob Lord villains in this as well. We have John Turturro as Carmine Falcone, and we've also got uh, Colin Farrell as Oswald Cobblepot or the Penguin. But interestingly, the Penguin, who we've seen as a as sort of the main villain, or at least a main villain in previous Batman films, is sort of a uh, sort of a lieutenant at this point in his career. He's not like the main guy, and. I have to say, even though my my default position on beloved character actors putting on some some freakish costume and fat suit to play a character that they look nothing like is that you should probably just find a character who looks a bit more like that person. That said, I loved Colin Farrell in this movie. I thought that every I thought every moment with Penguin was absolutely riveting. I thought that, uh, you know, this is a guy who's threatening. His motivations are all over the place. But like he really feels like. You're not really sure what he's up to, but you feel like he's a, a perpetual source of danger. And this is as contrasted with John Turturro, who is real quiet, real subdued, but feels like he'd have you killed and sleep well that night. Um, and that's kind of the only note that he's hitting, really. It's a very interest, It's a very entertaining performance, but there's not much else to it. You know, he's just the bad guy that you don't fuck with. But Penguin is a bit of a wild card. <laughs> well, right. Penguin's insane. Right, like he has a code, but he's insane. And uh, Carmine, you know, Falcone, he is you know, he's a mob boss, so he he's a lawful evil. He ha- he has a system that he works behind that he runs. Yeah, and we learn a lot more about that system over the course of the film. So, uh, what did you think of the look of this film? Would you say this was a good-looking film or not? It's hard to answer that. Everything was darkness. Uh, I would say it was good-looking enough and being grim. That is kind of where I landed on this. What I said on the night and uh, in my ensuing tweet storm was that this film is, in an obviously calculated way, ugly as fuck. Uh, Gotham, which is like 10 square blocks around Times Square in 1970, but I I say feels like a real place, even if it's a visual throwback, um, is a place where all these things are happening, where all these action sequences are happening, and I could always tell what was going on, and it felt like the movie was trying to make it difficult to depict those things. It was trying to make it hard for it was trying to depict the difficulty that bad guys would have as Batman is beating each of them up one at a time because he's surrounded by steam or smoke or because he's sneaking in from the sides. And it's not done through quick cuts. It's done through wide shots and darkness and obscurity. And it's it's a really clever take on both action choreography and also the way that the way in which it is shot. There's a freeway chase in this film, which I don't mind saying, that should have been fucking incomprehensible, but it, it's it works. I mean, it's pouring rain the entire time. There are vehicle headlights every which way, but the stunts make sense. The location of each vehicle is clear at all times. What exactly everybody is trying to do in that scene is making sense. It also obscures things in ways that enhance their effectiveness, like... How well do we get a look at the Batmobile, Daniel? I don't think we get to see it all that well at all. We kind of just get little snippets of it. It's this big imposing car, but we see that it's got we see it's got sort of rocket jets on the back and big powerful lights on the front, and that's about it. We don't get a very good look at it except that it's this terrifying, you know, cursed car in the darkness. What I mean, what did you think of the action in this film or any of those scenes? Yeah, I have to say the the actions uh, the action scenes in this film are well laid out. They're well choreographed. They they make sense and they don't rely on a billion quick cuts to tell you what's going on. Like there's quick cuts, but you can you can logically follow what's happening, and that's not easy to do, especially when like some of the combat takes place in complete darkness. 
yeah. re- relying on flashes of light to tell you what is happening. And I, I think it's it's the credit to the to the filmmakers for making that comprehensible and making it logical and make sense. A car chase scene, which I will double down. The Fast and the Furious has rendered all car chases moot. <laughs> like no one should try them at all. But I think I think the Batman does a pretty good job with it. Well, yeah. So I'll ask you: Do you think this movie innovated enough to say that it had a good car chase in a world where Fast and Furious makes everything bright, colorful, and massive scale in a way that no other movie can compete with that specific type of car chase—a car chase where it's basically superpowers with cars? This movie was doing something very similar. It was basically superpowers with cars, but it was doing something with so many visual hurdles thrown into its own path that it just kicks out of the way one by one that I I really do think this movie innovated on the car chase a little bit. It felt a bit more like uh, The Matrix 2, like like the freeway chase uh, car chase scene. That is high praise, my friend. You could tell what was going on. You can can see see the layout. You can see what's going to happen next, right? Like when when the... uh, uh, when the penguin was driving around and the Batman was chasing him, like you could tell, like oh, the penguins are going to try to do this, or you, you see the oil tanker, so the penguins are going to do that. You know, the, like he's, like you could kind of anticipate what was going to happen next, and then the movie delivered on that. So unlike the Fast and the Furious, where you're like, what sort of bullshit car magic <laughs> magic are they going to pull out of their ass? Oh, Dom's just going to hook the wheel to a rope and swing across a chasm. Sure. Like, th- this was a little bit more grounding to real life, even though the Batmobile is, is, is magic. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to uh, to the audiobook of uh, Kyle Buchanan's book about the making of Bad Max Fury Road. It's called Blood, Sweat, and Chrome. And, uh, I, you know, that's kind of going to be my high watermark for realism when it comes to uh, vehicular chases, vehicle destruction, vehicle choreography, because all that stuff was done for real. And, and you know, despite the little CGI enhancements in there, they really did bu- build a fleet of 70 cars and then and do crazy shit with them. Um, this movie, I have no idea how they shot this car chase. And for all I know, um, you know, they were they were filming uh, they were filming the participants in that car chase in exactly the same sort of in a studio, surrounded by green screen sort of way, and then mixing up this entire freeway chase in post. And that's fine. It was well executed. I was I was very happy with it. In fact, I would put it alongside uh, one of the memorable scenes from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, uh, which was another one where there's this massive battle of of apes invading San Francisco and the humans are fending them off. Um, and there, at one point, the uh, the apes get on top of this tank, and we sort of follow the tank cannon barrel around as the battle is raging in the background, and it's basically just fire and gunfire that is illuminating the scene. Uh, but it works, and it's one of these ones where just... You could tell that Matt Reeves did not want to rest on his laurels here. He wanted to do something interesting. He wanted to challenge himself, and that seems to be what he's done here, and it completely landed, so bravo for it. Um... Shall we go ahead and get into spoilers here? <laughs> I think uh, this would be a good time. I think we, you know, we're going to need to talk about the Riddler and what his motivation is and what his plan is, as well as what uh, what is revealed about the uh, the sort of greater world of Gotham City. But uh, Daniel, broadly speaking, um, how would you uh, how would you rank this compared to previous Batman films? Or would you recommend it at all? Take it take it however you like. No, no, I, I'd recommend it. It's it's better than any of the Affleck Batman films. It's not better than the Dark Knight. Batman Begins and the Dark Knight are still sort of the high watermark for me. I, I uh, definitely grew up watching the Michael Keaton uh, Batman from the early 90s as well, which are a very different vibe, but I enjoyed those as well. Um, what this movie has in common with the uh, with the Michael Keaton Batman is that it begins in media res. He's already Batman. He's wearing the cowl. He's on the case. And 
you know, that all of this corruption and crime and darkness is already surrounding him, but he can't solve all that right now because right now he's got a serial killer to hunt. So off he goes. Um, I thought his uh, his buddy buddy relationship with Jim Gordon largely worked. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Wright is always welcome here. Um, they wisely did not explain how that came about. They just sort of presented as, yep, they're they're pals, and he's useful in solving crimes. Um, Zoe Kravitz, I uh, I said this again in my my tweet storm on the night here was that. Um, Zoe Kravitz, uh, who we previously saw in Mad Max Fury Road, as well as uh, Kimmy most recently, is really coming into her own as an action lead here. I mean, she has to carry half the story in this film as sort of a co-protagonist. And, uh, you know, really, she's got a she's got an intensity and clarity of purpose uh, that really makes her a compelling action lead. And I cannot wait to see her headlining more movies. She is fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Although there's one weakness in her character and, and that it took the entire movie for her to pet a cat. <laughs> like I kept waiting for her to pack a cat, and it, didn't, it was like her, her last scene in the film. She packs a cat. She had cat They're, friends. They were around. Yeah, no, they were around, and I was watching closely, and she was not petting them. And I was like, "What are we doing here? Come on!" Now, as for Robert Pattinson, I want to say one more thing about him here. Um, I saw a certain billionaire space baron and electric vehicle baron tweet a thing the other day. He said that... Uh, oh, which one? That Hollywood... He, he rhymes with Felon Tusk. Uh, oh! He, are you a musketeer? So, he tweeted that uh, Hollywood will never depict a CEO as anything but a psychopath or a dweeb. And, uh, you know, so says the psychopathic dweeb was the obvious dunking joke on that. But, um, I, I gotta say... What I had to say about this as compared to previous Batman films was every version of Batman that we have seen, no matter what the tone, no matter who was starring in it, no matter what the world looked like, I the way they through line for them is it's Batman's world and we all just live in it. That is not what I felt watching this movie. It felt like he was not in control. It felt like he was he was multiple steps behind on the villain's plan. It felt like this could easily end badly for him, even though I know that they're going to make more versions of this. This feels like a movie that not only was willing to present him as just kind of an off-putting antisocial freak that is a, a bit off-putting to everybody who's not a close friend to him already. But even when he's taking the Batman suit off and we see him behind closed doors and he's he's trying to act like himself, he just feels like he's not at home in his own body. He feels like he's he feels like an addict coming down off a high and that works. It's a very odd take on Bruce Wayne, but we don't really see him as Bruce Wayne. You know, we believe that he's the billionaire playboy in the daytime and can probably attend a ball and wear a tuxedo like the rest of them. But I don't see him doing I, that. I didn't see it. I didn't see that. He, he's the reckless billionaire. Yeah. He's the one that nobody sees. And then when he shows up to an event, people are like, oh, goodness, that, that's Bruce Wayne. And then he doesn't talk to anybody. <laughs> Yeah, he's weird and off-putting, exactly like every actual CEO is in real life. So, uh, at least, you know, the big ones. But, um, yeah, so I I was a big fan of this performance. I don't know that it's going to land with everybody because they're used to the instantly likable version of Bruce Wayne. But, you know, this is a guy guy who can balance both worlds. Yeah, ass-kicker and debutante. Yeah, I I think that, uh, you know, that that duality of, oh, well, when he's when he's dressed when he's Bruce Wayne, he's wearing the costume. Batman is who he really is. Like, that's nothing new, as is the hero villain duality that's on display between him and the Riddler here. But um, I thought this was a novel take on it. And I enjoyed that much as well. So, yeah, uh, uh, this is the most excited I've been about a Batman film in over a decade or almost a decade. So, uh, yeah, bravo. And definitely check this one out. And now from here on out, spoilers for the Batman.
have a question for you. Okay. You would think that in a major metropolitan city where there seems to be a terrorist attack every, like, you know, 48 hours, and the mayor keeps getting assassinated, that they would have better security. You'd think, yeah. But I guess they don't learn in Gotham. You know, that that feels like a question like, uh, you know, why didn't... uh... Why didn't Captain America call in the other Avengers to uh, help him out with that that whole thing with the flying ship? Could have helped. Yeah. It's one of those things you just have to accept as an element of the world. But I don't have to. It doesn't really acknowledge the existence of other characters from DC. This was a standalone Batman film in every way. But also, even though I know this is going to be baked into other, you know, there will be other characters involved. There will be other connections here. It felt like this movie was happy to sort of set the table and knock it over. I mean, obviously, we we get sort of this biblical flood washing away all the corruption and establishment at the beginning. But, uh, you know, that's the result of the Riddler's plan. You know, he was uh, he was planning on taking out every established, every corrupt establishment figure who was tied to the Wayne Foundation uh, over the course of this film. And, you know, he's figured out that the Wayne Foundation, this is Thomas Wayne's charitable foundation that he uh, endowed with a billion dollars 20 years ago when he was running for mayor. Didn't we see that happen in uh, in the movie The Joker, uh, Daniel? Uh, that's Sorry, Joker. I think that's true, yes. I tried to burn that movie out of my brain. He ran for mayor and then he got assassinated or shot in an alley or there were no pearls dropping in this movie. Where were the pearls in this film? I need to know Batman's origin story. Like, how did he become the Batman? (laughs) Yeah, I I tweeted on the night that we saw this movie that uh, I went to the I went to an oyster beach and to the movies today and nary a pearl in sight. Where was Bane? Where was Bane? Where was Bane? I think I need more Bane. Maybe the next one. Uh, I don't want to think about what character actor they'll cast for that. But uh, but yeah, the, this film. So let's let's talk about the villain's plan here. So he was surveilling this this nightclub that is run by Carmine Falcone, where we saw that the mayor, the DA, literally everybody goes. All of these political establishment figures, including several Gotham PD cops, drink there and hang around and pal around with the mobsters. And also we have Selena Kyle, who works as a waitress there. Uh, and then we have uh, we have Penguin, who is her boss at that uh, that club as well. And it is also revealed that Selena Kyle, or Catwoman, is the daughter of Carmine Falcone, something that he does not seem to be aware of until the moment that she shows up to murder him. So, um... It's a heck of a paternity reveal. Indeed. This club is sort of the center of establishment corruption. I will say it's a, it's a bit simple. It's a bit pat. Uh, but the idea that the Wayne Charitable Foundation was the slush fund that funded crime in the city for Bringing 20 years... All is a nice workaround for the fact that the Waynes have billions of dollars and have done nothing to solve the social problems in this city. It's it's clever. It casts them as part of the corrupt establishment, whether Bruce Wayne's eyes were open enough to see that or not. I think Thomas Wayne had all the all the best intentions. You think you think he had the best of intentions when he uh, when he told Carmine Falcone to murder a journalist? He never said that. What he said was take care of the problem, get him to stop. He didn't say execute the man. Those are different things. Those yeah, are different I mean, instructions. We, we hear Alfred. This is Andy Serkis's take on Alfred. Uh, we, we hear him explaining um, in his hospital room after being blown the fuck up that Thomas Wayne cried about it and he couldn't believe what had happened. He, you know, he just thought he was talking to his friend. And, you know, it's entirely possible that Alfred believes this. It feels like a moment of, of naivety from, from Alfred. Alfred is not presented as this savvy, you know, former SAS figure who's got all these secret dangerous skills who is going to help out Batman. He's just the butler and estranged father figure who's been around for the last 20 years. So 
I don't know. It's entirely possible that Thomas Wayne died thinking he was a hero still, but that's kind of the whole point, right? You know, he, he sees himself as the good guy. He sees himself as not culpable for this horrible thing that he did. But anybody looking at that from the outside says that we intend the natural consequences of our actions. So when you tell your mobster friend to deal with that reporter, he's going to fucking murder him. That's not true, Glenn. What did the Kyle Rittenhouse case t- tell us? Uh, that white kids are privileged and can hunt people for sport across the Exactly. Lives. And he had the best of intentions. Yeah. If there's one thing that Russia invading Ukraine goes to show, it's that people do whatever they can do. Whatever they can get away with. Yep. That's about all I got. Now, speaking of the Riddler. So he has this cockamamie plan to expose, uh, like, via WikiLeaks and plus murder, uh, all these establishment figures in Gotham somehow magically manages to pick him off one by one without any issue, even though he's not a combat character. He's got people for that. He kills a mayor <laughs> uh, because, of course, he does. All the mayors are expendable in this in this film. Indeed. Terrible occupation for Gotham to want to run for mayor. Yeah, you don't want to become the mayor or the DA in Gotham City. Bad things will happen to you. Now, I will say that uh, I like Paul Dano as the Riggler. I think he he sold the emotions behind the character, like being so betrayed by the renewal fund and being an orphan. And of course, he's an orphan, right? One thing this movie has also taught me is that all orphans are evil. Except for Batman. He's the billionaire orphan who... Uh, he's the only good you're okay orphan. If, you're okay if you've got billions of dollars. Then you're not evil. You're just a rooftop psychopath. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, Paul Dingle's plan doesn't make a lot of sense after after the uh he blows the levees right like like the, like what are the next steps there were no next steps that felt like him abandoning his plan to do away with and expose the corrupt political establishment well he was expecting the batman to side with him or at least that's what he stated in his uh, interrogation it felt like him having a god complex anytime you want to flood the entire world and purge it of sin you're you're making fairly specific biblical references there I don't think there was much subtlety involved there. As, as much as Paul Dano, uh, you know, chewed the fuck out of the scenery in his interrogation scene, and largely, you know, they managed to make the, inter- the interrogation scene distinct from various other interrogation scenes we have seen, including most notably Heath Ledger's Joker interrogation scene in The Dark Knight. There was a barrier between the two. That was the difference. Well, there was a bit, it's more than that. It was also that the Riddler was talking to him, one, like he was going to side with him, and two, like he had already figured out his entire plan. So he wasn't even mocking him for not understanding it. He was legitimately disappointed that Batman had not figured out his Well, well sure, but like, what made, what made the Dark Knight scene, you know, so compelling was that, you know, the Batman is physically, you know, in, like, inflicting his will on the Joker and the Joker just laughs at him because he has no power over him. Meanwhile, Paul Dano's disappointed (laughs) and the Batman's like, tell me where the bombs are. I like the scene. You know, Paul Paul Dano did a really good job with the character and explaining his character motivations, explaining, you know, his thought process, flawed as it was, uh, you know, about why he wanted to perch, you know, Gotham, you know, uh, Gotham City's, you know, corrupt police and government. But I don't know, like, the Zodiac Killer aspect of it, you know, I guess it kind of felt a little flat to me. I, I guess I like more bombastic villains rather than like a nerd with a god complex. It was more than just, uh, you know, the, the sort of hero-villain duality that I alluded to there. He's sort of the expanded version of what we saw at the very beginning of The Dark Knight, which was Batman encountering a bunch of wannabe Batman wearing hockey pads and carrying guns. Um, 
And this was kind of just the apotheosis of that. And and again, we've had this many other times where Batman causes escalation and causes reciprocity from the criminal underworld that somebody is going to be the big theatrical version of Batman, but is going to have no qualms about killing. And as far as Paul Dano is concerned, as far as Edward Nashton or the Riddler is concerned, he is the hero of the story. He's the one who's exposing corruption. He's the one who's taking out all he's taking out the trash. He's dealing with all these people. He's trying to create a better world. Now, where we end up with him is he's trying to blow up the city and flood it. And I don't know how well that works as an ending for his character. I don't know what that through line is. That's maybe the part that did, that did not work for me as far as the the ending goes. I thought the ending was satisfying and I thought, you know, forcing Bruce Wayne to come to terms with the fact that uh, that, you know, this guy and the movement that he has inspired these uh, these sort of dark web fucking, uh, you know, accelerationist, you know, bugalo boys who go to work with him and who we see invading the stadium to try and to try and take out everybody, uh, everybody left as the flood is happening at the end. Uh, he sees, you know, he sees those guys dressed up as uh, as the Riddler, and he sees them identifying themselves as vengeance. One of them literally says, "I am vengeance," just like he did earlier in the movie. Uh, and he's forced to to realize, okay, maybe I need to give him a little bit, a little ray of sunshine as well. Otherwise, this is what I'm going to get. I'm going to get. A, I'm going to get a goon squad. I'm going to get a bunch of angry young men who are going to go and fuck things up. If all they've got to look forward to is either crime and corruption or me beating the shit out of them, I need to give them a third way. And that's where he ends up at the end, is the third way of him physically hauling these people out of the water. Do we want to see that, Batman, though? I mean, how well do you think it works? I'm, I'm honestly on the fence about it because it's such a quick moment and it's so incongruous with what has come before. It didn't really ruin it for me, but it also felt like it didn't really follow what had come before it. It... It's a welcome change to the character. Or at least it's a welcome character. It's an advancement on his art. An advancement, yes. I don't know. Like it, it does kind of feel like it, it came out of nowhere. Uh, that all of a sudden he realizes that his, his method is, is, is not going to work. That there's too many corrupt cops. That there's just too much... There's just too much corruption peering among people. You know, to just simply beat them into submission. He has to... I don't know. Actually, do a charity. I, I don't want. I don't want Batman as a you know selling Girl Scout cookies to make people feel good about themselves. I want Batman to fly into a room and have like a Chiron say "pow" as he uppercuts somebody. That's what I want to see. Well, you know, we also see this gorgeous, like almost uh, almost every frame of painting kind of shot of him holding up what was it like a road flare and hauling those people out yeah. in the darkness yeah. and the water. And it's another one of these ones where the movie seems to be throwing visual impediments into its own way and then constructing something beautiful out of it. So props for that. But it also felt like one of these let's revere this godlike figure kind of shots from Zack Snyder's take on the character. That that's really what it, what it felt like was a throwback to of like, ooh, look at this look at this this deity among us who is. Is uh, coming down from from Valhalla to rescue us from the darkness. Like, why didn't he just call Aquaman? Aquaman can receive the water. Doesn't exist in this world, dude. Different. It's a reboot. It's a different uh, different take. We're no, done with no, all no, that. no, 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 no. They. It's the DC universe. It's all connected. Yeah, I suppose. I, I think the DC keeps the continuity nice and loose, and that's probably for the best. It means we don't have to acknowledge that Todd Phillips thing, which I think is getting a sequel. It made a billion fucking dollars. Of course it's going to. Uh, but uh, but yeah, apart from that, I I think this movie's themes were a bit more coherent than than Joker. That's the movie I want to compare it to unfavorably. It, it also it had the same ideas about establishment corruption, but they were a lot more well-defined. They were a lot more specific. Um, 
this film was from the screenwriter. It was it was co-screenwritten by Matt Reeves, but it was also written by Peter Craig, uh, who was the screenwriter behind the movie The Town, which is uh, an excellent crime drama starring and directed by Ben Affleck, um, where uh, where they are uh, going on a series of bank robberies and heists and being investigated by an FBI agent played by John Hamm. Fantastic film. Uh, but I can sort of see where the coherence of the the crime plot and the interconnected corruption uh, sort of comes from there uh, with that with that through line there. So, you know, this is a blockbuster. that has got a little bit of a brain to it, which I appreciate it. It's got it's got a world that is largely coherent. I'm not sure how well the the ending landed, but the ending is less important to me than it has been in previous Batman films, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I'd like to know how long until the new mayor is revealed to be corrupt. <laughs> I was expecting it to happen within this movie. This is Bella Real, who is played by Jamie Lawson, and uh, she's ru- she's running in an uncontested mayoral race there at the end because her opponent got assassinated. So you know that's good work if you can get it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. She was uh, she was meant to be the uh, the one who was. I don't know if she's the AOC or Bernie Sanders figure here. There wasn't really a ton to her character other than just a big question mark as to whether she was going to be involved in the corruption or not. It's, I don't know that it was a missed opportunity or not. She just wasn't really the focus of the movie other than as, as an object of, uh, that was under threat. One other thing we haven't talked about yet is Michael Giacchino's score, which I, which I found hit a lot of the same notes over and over again, but the same could be said for John Williams score in Jaws, which is kind of what it reminded me of this big looming simplistic theme for Batman. Like, Oh fuck. Batman's here is what the score is perpetually saying. And I largely thought it worked. I thought the score was overpowering, but it was it was there and it, it did the job. What did you think of it? I do think it added to the ominous presence of the Batman. Uh, so I, I think it worked. I, I don't, unlike you, I don't really think too much about the score uh, in films. Like if the music seems to fit, I guess kind of let it filter as background noise. That's fair. I, I think scores have been uh, turned into background noise a lot lately. It's it's the rare score that really stands out in an interesting way. I called out the uh, the Disney and Pixar movie Luca that came out. I think actually just Disney movie Luca that came out last year had a fantastic score. Um, it's the rare superhero score that does anything interesting these days. So I you know I, I like that Chuckino tried to do something new, something a little bit different, something that's not identical to what we've seen in uh, in the pre- in the more recent uh, DCEU uh, Batman films. So uh, I appreciate it for that. But yeah, largely it is just background, and you know obviously the score is a more prominent uh, and recurring component in uh, Cyrano, which we'll be talking about here in a few minutes. So um, yeah, well Daniel, that's about all I've got. Uh, any final thoughts about the film? three hours long bring coffee uh no i i think it was a perfectly fine batman film uh, i liked uh zoe kravitz quite a bit i think paul dingo did a fine job even though i don't really care that much about the regular where is bang give me bang uh the other characters i think the penguin colin farrell did a good job playing a character that i didn't realize was colin farrell into the credits yeah <laughs> that's what i knew go again so John Turturro is everybody's favorite evil uncle, so it, it all worked. Um, yeah, I I largely thought this worked. I'm happy that there has been a, a good Batman film made recently here, and not just one that was you know pretty good, but we're kind of loosely defending, like The Dark Knight Rises, or one where your mileage may vary, which was anything that followed that. So, um, yeah, solid film. Uh, you know, I I know there will be more in this universe. I will definitely be there to see what what happens next, and hopefully, it's something interesting. Uh, that's something interesting might be the Joker. You know, we see him turn up there yeah. at the end. So Barry Keoghan, uh, who was in Eternals, plays Stanley Merkel, a GCPD officer. I do not remember seeing Barry Keoghan in the film at all. So 
the rumor is that Barry Keoghan was in fact playing the Joker in that final scene. Now, we don't get a good enough look at his face to know for sure, and Barry Keoghan's got a very distinctive-looking face, uh, but he's also got a very distinctive-looking, a distinctive-sounding creepy voice. So... I think maybe that was him in the final scene. I'm not prepared to put uh, to you know put my foot on either side of the line there, but I'm sure we will probably find out sooner rather than later. I could have taken that scene or, le- or left it. Honestly, it's it's one of these things that I'm glad we didn't have to sit around to the end credits to find out about. Uh, but it's uh, uh, but you it's know bad uh, cell design. Yeah, they shouldn't be able to talk to each other. They shouldn't be able to talk <laughs> to each other, especially when you have somebody who is a cult leader like the Joker and talking to a guy who's obviously in mental distress as the regular was. Yep. It seems like a recipe for uh, a team. A coup. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll obviously watch Bar- the hell out of Barry Keoghan as the Joker. So if that's what's happening in the next movie, cool. I just hope it's something interesting. We've all, we've already seen a second Batman movie in which the Joker shows up, but we've only gotten one bang movie. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to uh, have to wait and see on that. But, I was born in the darkness. But uh, I know not only are they developing additional movies uh, that are direct sequels to this, but they're also developing an HBO Max series, same as you know, Peacemaker came out of the Suicide Squad here. So there will be lots more here. We'll see what happens. Okay, here here's a film for you: The Batman and Catwoman versus The Joker and Bane. Okay, but what's what's the combat style here? What's it look like? That's not a pitch. That's a fight. That's a Street Fighter game. Like, what's what's happening here? What's the what's the uh, what's the draw? Rig the rig redemption style martial arts. Okay, I would watch Bane throw somebody through a wall, but like, you know, I, I got to believe the moves. I got to believe the complexity. I'm not sure they could do it. Okay, and then the Fast and the Furious gang shows up, and there's a car chase. It's universal, dude. It's not going to happen. Well, anything can happen. In the universe of Batman. This is not Space Jam 2, Daniel. We're not going there. Well, that brings us to the end of the, our discussion of the Batman by force. Think if, about if it. Necessary. Think about it. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of the Batman. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of... Cyrano? Cyrano. Pleasure to meet you, Cyrano de Bergerac. You're a freak. Freak. friend I'd be very angry with you if you died my sole purpose on this earth is to love roxanne does she know the world will never accept someone like me and a tall beautiful woman we have no money a clever marriage is your only option i won't be rescued i'm not in distress love does that mean nothing to you children need love adults need money i need something to die for write poems and cry for and I won't be ashamed I'd give anything for someone to say that they can't live without me and they'll be there forever I have a confession to make I am madly in love perhaps he feels the same but I've never actually spoken to him of your love of anything he is Christian. Christian Nubelet. He's a new recruit in your regiment. Of course he is. A woman like Roxanne wants wit, romance, poetry. I don't know how to speak romantically. I am a poet. My words upon your lips. I will make you romantic. Will you make me handsome? She loves me! I
That was from the trailer of Cyrano, the new film from director Joe Wright, uh, with a screenplay by Erica Schmidt based on her stage musical from 2018, uh, which features music and lyrics by various members of The National, uh, a band that has uh, collaborated with the likes of Taylor Swift. Those same folks did the music and lyrics as well as the score for this film. The uh, brothers Aaron Destner and Bryce Destner did the entire score for this. Uh, They also wrote all of the music for the uh, songs, and the lyrics were written by Karen Besser and Matt Berninger. Matt Berninger, who is the lead singer of uh, The National, and Karen Besser is uh, his wife and writing partner. Uh, This film stars... Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett as uh, Cyrano de Bergerac and Roxanne. It stars Calvin Harrison Jr. as Christiane de Nouvellet and Ben Mendelsohn as the Duke de Guiche. These are sort of the uh, uh, the four core folks behind Cyr- uh, the play Cyrano de Bergerac, which is loosely based on a real guy uh, that lived a long time ago. Uh, but his life is so fictionalized here. He lived in the 17th century. And other than the sort of the broad beats of his life, that he went to war, that he died young, all the rest of this is completely fictional. It's based on a very old play, which was then turned into a stage musical. And sort of the basics of it... It's not that old. Well, it's old enough. It's... Oh, wow, it's 1897. I actually did not realize how recent it was from uh, playwright Edmund Rostand. Have you ever read the play, Daniel? I have not. No. I've heard of it, but I've not read it. Have you ever seen previous adaptations of Cyrano de Bergerac? No, I didn't know it was a musical when I started the film. I did not know that the Cyrano play had ever been turned into a musical. I was not aware of the uh, the Broadway run of this. Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett actually played these characters on the stage as well. So one of the compliments that I will have for them immediately, I'm going to go ahead and toss this out, is that they have immediate best friend chemistry the opening scene between the two is in which we already know that Cyrano is madly in love with Roxanne at this point uh, because he's already been introduced he's already had a confessional song with his uh, his buddy Captain Labrette played by Bashir Saladin and he is uh we already know that he's hopelessly in love with his best friend Roxanne who he knew from a village in the southwest of France where they both came from and it is obvious from the second we meet these two that they have an easy patter and a comfortable relationship. You just immediately sense that these two enjoy each other's company, and there's a very good reason for that. And we've already seen by this point what an interesting libertine badass Cyrano de Bergerac is. I, I gotta say, Daniel, this probably stands up there as one of the best sort of 15-minute character introductions I have ever seen. In the space of it, we get to see Cyrano de Bergerac being a theatrical critic and heckler, make that seem sexy and dangerous, threaten to duel the lead actor until he storms off stage, and then duel a man to death before rap battling with him on that very same stage in front of an audience of nobility. And then we see him, uh, you know, best 10 men in a sword fight uh, within a few minutes of that as well, all uh, under the auspices of actor Peter Dinklage. Cyrano de Bergerac is always depicted as a character who is uh, considers himself to be ugly or deformed or otherwise physically unworthy of affection or even being looked at by the people in his life. He is deeply self-loathing. Um, that's been handled in various ways in previous depictions here, uh, often with like a fake nose or something that really sticks out, something along those lines. I believe that's how Gerard Depardieu played the character many years ago. That was a previous version I had seen. Uh, in this case, Peter Dinklage makes the rather courageous choice of basing the entire basing his entire negative self-image on the actor's short stature. And that's obviously a, a similar choice to what he made when playing Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones. You know, obviously he can't switch off the way that uh, small people are seen in entertainment, the way that small people have been used in entertainment before, the way they've been regarded by society at large. 
And he puts all of that on the line in a way that is fundamentally inseparable from the character itself. Obviously, Peter Dinklage is not the same person as as any of these characters that he's playing, but he brings those elements of his own humanity into the performance. And that struck me as not only a brave choice, but one that felt uh, that made the character feel more true to life as I was watching the film. So, Daniel, I can gush about this film all day. I, in fact, watched the movie a second time. A second viewing while I was working today. Uh, and I, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to bury the lead here. This film is absolutely fantastic and I loved it, but I'm curious what you think. I thought it was fine. You thought it was fine. Daniel, you think everything is fine. <laughs> I would have maybe tackled the movie Cyrano in the friend zone. Um, I think that the, I agree with you that, uh, Peter Dinklage and Haley Bennett have uh, a chemistry with one another. Uh, but both as like actors and as their characters, like you could tell they were very comfortable working together. They had a, a nice, you know, back and forth, uh, nice, you know, nice chemistry there. It's a nice, simple story. It's colorful. I enjoyed it. I only liked one of the songs. Which one? Uh, one the, they're singing about, uh, saying goodbye to their loved ones before they uh, storm uh Storm the Battlefield. Okay, this was Wherever I Fall, which features a trio of unknown soldiers played by by three singers and actors. Uh, Glenn Hansard, who was the lead in the movie Once, where he uh, basically, that's basically a jukebox musical in which he sings a bunch of songs with Marquis de Glova, came out in 2008. It's a fantastic film. Uh, it's it's a more fantastic soundtrack than film, though. Uh, Sam Amidon, who I believe is also a musician of some sort, and Scott Fullen, who is a Broadway actor. We do not meet these characters at any other point in the movie. It's just a trio of soldiers singing about the letters they write home before going off to die in a suicide mission in the 30 years war um it is a song that i have watched twice and it is heart-wrenching and beautiful and it made me cry the first time i saw it and it nearly made me cry the second time i saw it so i'm with you on that it is a fantastic song it's a great song did you like any of the songs that were performed by the main characters here? I can think of a few specific ones that I enjoyed, but I have a lot to say about how the songs were used in general here. I thought they were fine. I, I, I enjoyed them, but I, I wasn't... I don't know. Roxanne is so emotionally needy. Like, the, the fact that like somebody needs to be wooed constantly, you know, that's high maintenance. <laughs> and like it's not a... Other like people have different versions of what high maintenance is. That is high maintenance. Someone that needs to be constantly wooed at all moments of their life. Like, ugh, get over yourself a little bit. Jesus, you're not that preggy. <laughs> so, Daniel, we also have a couple of things here. We've got longtime friends between her and her and Cyrano. Uh, we've also got love at first sight between her and Christian Christian played by Calvin Harrison Jr. Who of the three is definitely the best singer. I was going to go ahead and say that straight away. Uh, I think that Haley Bennett and Peter Dinklage are both fine singers. I think they both have their own powerhouse emotional moments uh, in the film, but Calvin Harrison Jr. Is the one who clearly came out of the world of stage performance and, uh, and was not the already famous actor who wanted to try out the musical, uh, the musical theater stage. So bravo to him for that. You used a lot of phrases here, calling her high maintenance, friend zone. I mean, let's be honest here. This is a movie that has a literal incel rapist anthem performed by the Duke de Guiche, played by Ben Mendelsohn here, which, you know, he's appropriately grotesque and repulsive in that song. It's a gross song that's supposed to be gross, and that's fine. And Mendelsohn was good in this role. In that Gross song by a gross man. But this film... It's not asking you to evaluate the relationship or the utter absurdity of of Christian borrowing Cyrano's words to woo the woman that he loves. 
because we're in the musical genre and because we're surrounded by pageantry and theatricality, you know, who is this savage who dares to present himself in public without ribbons, bows, or braids is a line that occurs before an actual glove slap and duel that occurs on a theatrical stage. Oh, I like the glove slap. The glove slap was great. I'm going to challenge you on this because how can you accept all of the theatricality that is in play in this film and suddenly have a problem with just taking the relationships that are given here as given conventions of the musical genre? These people are ridiculous, but they can also burst into song at will. Yeah, I understand how musicals work. I'm allowed to have any opinion on anything that I want. I don't have to be consistent. I could say I like this, and then on the very same movie, dislike something that's very similar. It's my choice. Well, let's compare this to another famous old-timey story with a balcony scene. How would you say that this compares to Romeo and Juliet? I mean, it's a Jace to Romeo and Juliet, but Romeo and Juliet is about family squabbling and true love and people not winging <laughs> before they drink you know drink poison and sword fights like th- this is fine like it, i enjoyed it i enjoyed the relationship i thought i just i i got strong friend zone vibe for somebody who boasts about their giant cock i would think Cyrano would hook up with other women well so what is clear from the outset of this film is that neither of them is engaging in any sort of deception about the nature of their relationship until Cyrano agrees to this scheme, which he ultimately does because he wants Roxanne to be happy. And he believes that the only way that Roxanne could be happy is if she is with a more handsome man than himself. Why did they hook up as a threesome? It makes every moment and every action that he takes in this film deeply tragic and deeply sad. And every moment of that is played in Peter Dinklage's performance. It is Yes, Peter Dinklage is fantastic. My wife and I watched the film together. And what we kept saying was, why not just have a threesome? Well, we can talk about the threesome here because, first of all, we're not going to do a spoiler section for this film because, you know, it's a multi-hundred-year-old story. Cyrano de Bergerac dies young, and that is also the case in this film, so be prepared for that. I'm not going to compare this movie to Romeo and Juliet, a play that is clearly an influence on the story in both structure and ending. Not my favorite Shakespeare work. But there is a song in this film that plays in every way like a menage a trois, and that song is Every Letter. Uh, It is a lyrical trio of pure sex. I am going to stand by this. If you look at the lyrics of this song, this song is about sex. It is shot like a sex scene. Haley Bennett as Roxanne sitting there reading these letters. And I say sitting there. She's only sitting there for some of the time. She's lying on her bed. She's rolling around. She's holding them up over her head like she's She's getting off to him. I got it. It is this warm lighting and quick cuts in the darkness. And. It becomes a trio between these three characters, a letter-writing montage of Cyrano writing letters and Christian delivering them and Roxanne reading them, and the three of them singing about their motivations and different layers of romance and deception and tragedy going on in every one of their vocals, and the, the, uh, the frame beautifully split up between the three of them, even though they're never in the same location. I mean, what... What's at play in this film is the power of asynchronous communication and the opportunities at both deception and self-deception that it affords us. You know, these people could just as easily be texting and ghosting each other. That That is a way in which this story feels relevant even today, even if the characters and even if the structure are a bit ridiculous. This is the original catfish right here, Daniel. I mean, kind of. I do credit the film in that I wish people talked uh, in letters, uh, you know, or text messages like they did in, in the film, uh, because uh, people are real, 
real crude these days. There's no flower language or beautiful couplets. It's, you yeah, know, there's ex- just I want to smash, you want to smash. Pic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where was the dick pic drawing? That could have been funny. Well, first of all, I think that we exaggerate the vulgarity of the present day and the, vulgar. Of the past day because the stories that have survived from that period of time are the ones we want to tell with all the rich people and pageantry and, you know, ribbons, bows, and braids. Yeah, ri- ribbon, yeah, rich people make things better, I know. But I want to talk about the songs here because I'll be honest with you, Daniel, I'm with you on this. Most of the songs not only did not impress me, but I noted multiple times that they were repetitive and dull. And... That's something that I struggled with rewatching the film because, you know, this is a two hour long film and it has probably 90 minutes of musical score going on behind it. The music is never stopping. It's always going. It's always setting mood. And but here is what I noticed the second time watching this movie. It was something that was it was there the first time uh, as well. But it was uh, it was that whenever the songs got repetitive, whenever they were basically just extended soliloquies and we were just dwelling on a particular emotion or a particular beat Joe Wright seemed to have a sense of exactly when the lyrics were going to hold our interest and require our attention and when he needed to layer other things underneath it. There's a literal sheep ballet in this film. There's a long tracking shot where we go through men pr- practicing sword fighting at the guard station. Poorly um, practicing sword you know, there's, fighting. You know, there's, there's an overhead shot of all those things happening as well as the song is continuing in the background or as the musical score is forming a seamless transition from one scene into the next. The music feels like a layer of the film and occasionally it is on display occasionally it is at the forefront and occasionally it just feels like a layer of gloss or a layer of paint on top of something beautiful and ultimately i think it all works even though the individual songs did not work as well for me and some of these songs are only like two verses long or maybe a few lines long there's still these brief moments of the character just spilling their heart out to the audience and then we move on to something else and largely they worked and when i think of the number of songs that landed for me it was more than just one for me. Wherever I fall, I'm with you on that. That, that was a fantastic song. Um, but uh, there were a few others here that uh, that really worked for me. Every Letter is fantastic. I Need More, which is the one that, uh, that you know, obviously was Roxanne being ridiculous, but she was laying out, I need more than I love you. I've heard that line before. And it's one of those sentiments that works really well in a song. But there's that song is also fulfilling a brilliant structural purpose because... That scene begins with the same three people at one location, and it ends with the same three people at a different location, but arranged in such a way that we can have this absurd balcony scene, which is the centerpiece of the entire film. The balcony scene doesn't work for me. Like, how does she not recognize his voice? Suspension of musical disbelief. No. Imagine this on a theatrical stage. None of these sets felt like real places. They felt like theater scenes. Yes, I understand. that was I, a very deliberate stylistic choice. I know how theater works. I'm just saying... You, you would have thought maybe she had a line that says, your voice sounds familiar to me. Did you ever see Joe Wright's Anna Karenina uh, from 2011? No. Peter Craig also wrote the screenplay for that one, and it was done very much in the same vein as... Do you actually remember when we reviewed the National Theater Live's production of Frankenstein? Yes, um, I remember the that. The first plague year, uh, back when we were really changing up the formula? Well... That was shot on an actual stage with actual set pieces, and it was shot all in one go. Well, at least it it was seemingly shot all in one go. We don't really know if that happened or not. But Anna Karenina was shot in a very similar way. It was shot as if, I mean, there's there's a train that's a major set piece in that, but it feels like a theatrical set piece. Everything in that film was set up to look like theater. Uh, and it felt like this was going for something similar. When, it, when we see, uh, you know, Cyrano and Labrette wandering around on the docks as he's confessing his love for Roxanne for the first time, 
I never really thought for a moment that we were on a real dock. This is a set. When he was on a stairway dueling with ten men, which, by the way, a stairway, excellent place to set a duel if your lead actor is Peter Dinklage. I think they knew that going in. It's one of many ways in which the fighting style was was done in such a way that not only accounted for Peter Dinklage's stature in the process, but it also it also covered the ways in which this guy's a skilled fighter, a seasoned fighter. He would use his height to his own advantage. He would use it to have a smaller area to guard against. He would he, he would know how to deflect blows from larger men. And that really played in the way that the fight choreography played out here, which is another detail I really appreciated. But uh, but yeah, it, it feels like theater. And this, the balcony scene also felt like theater. I mean, those those extended score moments where the score was forming a scene transition. Well, I can imagine what would happen on the actual stage then. That's when all the guys wearing black jumpsuits come in and, and swap out the set pieces and roll things off stage and the background changes. And now we're on to the next thing. We don't have to think about how they got from point A to point B. But this movie makes all of that work in an actual three-dimensional town. And I appreciated that. Uh, but you didn't like the, the balcony scene. That didn't work for you? Not even the brilliant, not even the beautiful filmmaking and the split diopter of. Uh... I thought it was good. I just I didn't buy that she wouldn't have one line that say like to question that whether or not she recognized his voice. They were singing a song. The plot rules are suspended when you are singing a song. This is germane to the musical genre, Daniel. This is coming from a man who does not like Bollywood for the same reason. You're, are you talking about me or you? You. <laughs> no, it, it, I, I'm, I'm warming to Bollywood. I just have limited exposure to it. And people busting out a, a song and dance number uh, in the middle of, in the middle of the thing or at the end of the thing is ex- something ex- that could very much land for me. But from what I've heard, that is how business is done in India. Let's go back to the balcony scene here for a second, because if anything didn't work about that scene for me, it's that Christian throughout this film feels like a non-entity until the moment that he realizes that Cyrano loves Roxanne, which is right before he is killed. I was kind of shocked that he hadn't pieced it together yet. I was like, really? He doesn't know? Like, the guy who's writing all these love letters? You don't think that he has feelings for this gal? All right. Well, Christian is not, uh, Christian's not stupid, but he is a bit naive, and he is a bit, uh, he is a bit simple in his motivations and his execution. And this is something that he's very much aware of about himself. It's the reason why he enlists Cyrano into this scheme, uh, which in in reality is Roxanne enlisting him into that scheme as well. You know, it's the two of them asking asking their collective bestie to, to fix them up together. It landed for me because it was such a sweet romantic scene. It landed for me because the movie was telling me, okay, this is a moment in which he gets to speak honestly to her and she gets to speak honestly to somebody completely different. And as we're watching him spill his heart out on the screen, we know that there is an element of tragedy to it because he knows that she's not talking to him and he knows he can never say this to her in real life. And some of that is circumstance and some of that is his own insecurity. And that is what's at play the entire time. This notion that he is unlovable or undeserving of love. And that is what he has to overcome over the course of the film. And I don't know if he ever does. It seems like he gets there, but it's right before his demise. He's a tragic figure. And, you know, I, I was I was sad when he was gone. And that was the and that's credits right there. That's the end of it. His death scene, I mean, was it was predictable, but, you know, it, it was it was sweet. It was well handled. Although I was kind of hoping she uh, Roxanne was going to shrug when he dies. And she's like, all right, well. All right, time to go have some fucking soup. Somebody's got to woo me. Who's wooing me? You've described the ways in which Roxanne's character didn't work for you. What did you think of Haley Bennett as this uh, performance? Oh, no, she, she's very good. I, I I think that her character was annoying, but like I still liked her performance. I guess I can understand 
watching Roxanne and finding her to be someone who is not worth the trouble. But did you believe that, did you believe Cyrano's romance for her? Did you believe that made sense? Did you believe yes. that? Uh, yeah. Well, when uh, he tells the story of meeting her for the first time and she was reading the very book, he had, you know, went over to borrow from her father and he, he viewed, you know, he looked upon her and instantly fell in love. What that, that makes sense within the realm of the movie play that we were watching. Yeah. And it felt real. It was a meet cute. It worked. But it also felt uh, like it naturally followed. It created a through line for their friendship because when we first meet Cyrano, it's when he busts out his heckling at the theatrical performance there at the beginning uh, for Montfleury, the best actor in a generation, who he thinks is a tired old gas bag who needs to... I was looking forward to that guy's performance, and I was really disappointed we, we didn't get to see what he had in store. And then he buys out the entire uh, the entire take at the door so that the audience can be refunded rather than see this guy's performance, which is kind of the ultimate flex, right? Like, you're so bad, I'm gonna buy everybody's ticket back so they don't have to see you that's a big old insult right there it sure is and then we see that creepy tall fucker valver who who, uh calls him a freak and calls him a savage who dares to present himself blah blah that's a great line and then it begins with a fucking rap battle where he introduces himself as a character and i uh, tell me that was not a song you enjoyed no i i i mean i expect that much from peter dinklage Yeah, Peter Dinklage was definitely doing the same uh, the same sort of sideways shoulder first intro that he did in that one video where I think it was cut together from a rap song along with some outtakes from Game of Thrones from Peter from Tyrion Lannister's trial scene. And it's him just kind of shrugging his shoulders with the beat. You know mm-hmm. the video I'm talking about. Kind of the video. I'll link yeah. it in the show notes here. But that was his intro. And then he gets to do an actual rap battle. If I had known that's how this movie began, I would have seen it a lot. I would have gone out of my way to see it months ago. So... It sounds like this one didn't land for you, which I'm uh, I'm glad we didn't just uh, have identical opinions on it like we did with uh, with the Batman. It was fine. I liked it. I laughed when Christian got shot. Who just who just stormed by themselves over the <laughs> over the barricades? Come on, bro. Do you not know? Have you not listened to any of the training? One detail that I liked was that we don't know the battle. We don't know what the war is. Of course, I looked it up afterward. It's based loosely. It's the Thirty Years' War. Siege yeah. in the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, but the idea that these guys would sing their death song before charging over that hill to their death because they don't have any choice in life and that's their duty and that's what's expected of them. Which and battle was we, it? The audience don't know who they are and don't know what they're fighting for. Just. Amplifies the hopelessness of it all, and you know maybe because of the horrific war that is happening right now. But that was very much on my mind. The idea of war as this unglamorous thing, in which this guy thinks, "Okay, we're going to make it out of this, and we're going to give Roxanne the choice. We're going to let her decide which of us she wants to be with." And then he immediately charges up that hill and dies. You know, death isn't concerned about a tidy end to your story. <laughs> you're you're charging up a hill, and you're the first moving thing they see, and they're going to shoot you dead. Whoever they are, and for whatever reason they're doing it, just as you're going to do to them. You're just a figure in the darkness, and then you're nothing. So, you know, I, I don't know. It, it worked for the moment, and it worked for the need to dispose of that character, and it really turns Christian into a tragic figure as well. He spent that whole time thinking that Roxanne could love him, but, you know, it was the meat cute. It was the bolt of lightning. It was love at first sight, and it worked until the minute he realized that it never worked. Yeah, I'm sorry it didn't work for you, Daniel. This is one that's going to stick with me. It's probably one I'm going to buy on 4K as soon as I can, because it's an absolutely gorgeous film as well. I thought it was fine. I liked one of the songs. I thought the performances were good. It just won't stick with me. That's all. 
That's fair. I felt that way about a lot of musicals, so I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, I liked uh, Tick, Tick, Boom last year, but it's not one I'm going to be revisiting all that much. So I'm glad that, you know, it meant a lot to you to watch it a second time because you really enjoyed it. I think that's great. I'm, I'm not saying that condescendingly. Like, I, I, I think that's, that's great. I just, I can, I can feel the same. I'm with you, Daniel. It's uh, This is one that I'll be evangelizing for many years to come here. I hope it will not become the Cloud Atlas of this podcast, but... Uh, no, no, I don't, I don't... Cloud Atlas, I legitimately hate it. Uh, like, this... Cyrano is a good movie. It's just... It wasn't one that really grasped me. Fair. Uh, did your wife's hand grasp you at some point during the movie, though? I mean, I... I you know, it was a nice romantic movie to watch with... Uh, it's not a little dirty, as I said it now. Did you oh, like yeah, no, we, we definitely... I missed the whole third act. You said you think <laughs> Cyrano died? Crazy. That's a spoiler right there, but no, it was a very, it's a sweet, it was a sweet romance to watch with my own sweet romance, which I enjoyed as well, so. Yes, I, uh, we, we enjoyed watching the film, you know, together. Well, uh, that's about all I got, uh, Daniel. This film is in theaters now, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's available, we, we watched it through a screener, so I'm not exactly sure what its uh, streaming options are going to be, but it should be out very soon. I think there is sort of a, uh, a premium VOD option for it now, but I will, uh, I will put all that in the show notes as well. Um, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Cyrano. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in filmwonk.net, and have a good night. Every